there's this idea that if we could just wave a magic wand and build all these thousands of houses, that everything would settle out because houses would become affordable. I think that sounds really overly simplistic. I, I think it's a lot more complex than that. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. Today, I had the delight and pleasure to talk with Rob Carrick, who is one of Canada's seasoned personal finance journalists. Rob has been providing personal finance information for decades. In fact, we determined that he started his career when I was one years old. So for the last 37 years, Rob has been a source of reliable information and practical advice, helping Canadians navigate the complexities of everyday finances. And as Rob puts it, and I quote him, not all journalists get to live their beat, but I do. My personal finance column in the Globe and Mail is one regular guy's attempt to make sense of the world of money. And Rob has done such a fantastic job in doing that. In this conversation, we not only talk about Rob's writing, but we get the opportunity to dive into Rob's journey, exploring how he learned to navigate the world of personal finance and how his idea of reflecting on improvements with our relationship with money is key to having a healthy relationship with money. Rob then shares insights into his dedication to his work and the origins of his commitment to his readers. You will feel in Rob's responses, his level of commitment to his readers and really wanting them to improve their personal finances. We tackle many common worries and concerns faced by his readers in 2023 and take a glimpse in what he thinks we can expect in 2024. This was a fantastic conversation. To be able to speak to Rob, someone who I've looked up for years and years, was a joy and a treat. Throughout this entire conversation, Rob shares incredibly valuable advice on making incremental improvements each year that lead to greater financial success. Before we get into the show, if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would love it if you could support the show in one of two ways, or you can do both. Number one is head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. The second one, if you enjoyed this conversation or another conversation, share it with your friend, family, or colleague. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. We were just chatting briefly and found out that you started your career, and we'll get to it, in different elements of the finance world when I was one years old. So you have been doing this for a long time. And when you joined our little online meeting, I had said, 
my entire career, I've seen your name as a consistent and reliable source. So it's a delight to have a conversation with you today, Rob. I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's interesting to sort of uh, be confronted with the length of my career as you presented it there. But yeah, I'll, I'll put a, you know, a good spin on it. I have seen some stuff in my time and I, uh, I have a good perspective. I'm looking forward to diving into that, that stuff and your perspective. And I look at it as a lot of wisdom, your career span of 37 years. So let's jump into it. I thought we'd start back in the 90s when I was five. Well, I was, I was older, different parts, I was older than five. But anyhow, as I entered the 90s, I was five. You covered the Bay Street business scene. And I understand you later found yourself at CP's Parliamentary Bureau in Ottawa to cover consumer affairs. And then shortly after is when you found yourself where you are still today at the Globe and Mail. And you were covering personal finance for a long time. A lot of those years, you could maybe fill us in. What I'm really impressed with is over your longstanding career with the Globe and Mail, you've really stuck to personal finances. While some journalists have gravitated towards what the reader or maybe themselves think are flashy and sexy topics like hedge funds and short trading, etc., you've really seemed to really stick to this consistent messaging around personal finances. I'd like to ask, where did and does this commitment to really diving into the essentials personal finance come from? I think personal finance is just everyday life. It's the decisions you're making uh, in personal finance are the decisions that come up every day. I mean, going to get a coffee, buying groceries, getting your paycheck, deciding what to do with it, deciding whether to save or to spend or to invest. These uh, decisions come up all the time. And the way I got into writing about personal finance in the first place, I mean, I was not... I was not a prodigy. I wasn't like looking after my money to perfection. And I thought I need to tell everybody else how great I'm doing. Hmm. I, I made my share of mistakes. I did some right things, but I just found myself in my uh, early thirties being confronted with so many financial decisions. And I thought I don't have enough information. I could find out for myself and then help other people make decisions for themselves. And so that's where I jumped off on this sort of a, at a ground level. I mean, personal finance, when I started was, was kind of elitist. It was all sort of how the well-off can get better off. And I didn't really, you know, journalism isn't, you know, a phenomenally well-paying, it's a comfortable profession, but it's not a phenomenally well-paying. I wasn't in any great position of wealth, but I thought, I'm out there duking it out with all these expenses and demands on my money. What can I find out and share with everybody else? And that's where I jumped off from, and that's where I am today. Your answer, I just really appreciate it. This is your words. Everyday life is kind of what you alluded to for personal finances. And we, we really seen the last 10, 15, 20 years a lot of blogs coming that are documenting everyday life. It sounds like you were way ahead, 20 years ahead of the blogger, blogger life of just really documenting your everyday life. So the other word I really liked when you said you were talking from the ground up. In a time when this wasn't the norm, what did your peers, what did the, like, how about Globe and Mail? What did they say when you're, you said you didn't want to talk about flashy, high, high investment returns? Instead, you want to talk about everyday life, talking the ground up personal finance, how did they respond? Well, full credit to the people at the Globe. They just sort of gave me free reign to sort of find my way and to develop a voice. And I knew that our readers had certain interests and it wasn't like I was ignoring those. I mean, I did talk about investing and how to optimize your returns and uh, how to, you know, how to navigate financial markets. But I did it from the point of view of someone who didn't understand a lot and wanted to get 
the basics and then get to the finer points. And, you know, I sort of built my brand on explaining things and keeping it clear. And I just got nothing but encouragement over the years as I did that. People said, oh, I read your column and I kind of really understood it. And as I've said like many times, no one has ever said, Rob, could you please make your columns more complex and technical? Uh, people appreciate simplicity and the ability to explain in a simple terms. I mean, that, that to me demonstrates mastery of a topic. When you can break it down, when you're telling me, when you're talking about equities and fixed income and volatility and all that stuff, I think, well, you're either selling investment products or you're trying to dazzle people with technical terms that really actually are, uh, are turnoff. Yes, I, I couldn't agree anymore. As you've covered this field over the many, many, many years, you've encountered so many events, so to speak, such as bull markets, recessions, stock market crashes, global financial crisis, witnessed the ebbs and flows of the housing markets, and this personal debt load that we're dealing with right now. Considering each of these events have its own unique content and details to them, as you've observed consumers over the past three decades navigate these different events, do you identify any consistent contextual applications that the consumers are bringing to these events? So what I mean by while the details of each event changes, what is the, have you observed as consistent on how we embrace these events as consumers? I hate to fall back on a cliche, but fear and greed help sum things up quite well. Mm. You know, there's... You know, when things are going very well, people double down. And when things go bad, people run away. And there are a lot of savvy people out there who buy when things are low, when copper prices are low. But there is just sort of this ebb and flow of overdoing it on each end, being too fearful and too fearless. Mm -hmm. And I see that repeated over and over again. And, you know, when housing prices in early 2022 were peaking, it was obvious that this was a unsustainable situation. But, you know, the bidding wars just got more and more intense. It was a classic example. And uh, on the flip side, you know, it, I've seen market downturns where it took like years for people to get back into the market. And then when they did, the best gains were already gone. You know? So I see that repeated over and over again. But you know what? This is humanity. Like we can go, well, tisk tisk. I, I cannot believe people are so foolish, but that's how people are wired. So I'm, I, what I try to do is make them a little bit more aware of their behavior and try to coax them into thinking about what they're doing. But I recognize that, you know, there is, there's a lot of internal emotional pull and it's hard to fight that. And, and you know, we, if we expect people to just, you know, do better, if we just explain things clearly, well, it's not that simple. I, I really appreciate that point there if we just expect them to do differently. And I can't remember as I was getting ready for today, it was either a podcast or an article you wrote about how the industry uses a lot of shame to try to motivate behaviors. Yeah. You make such a good point though, is like we were hardwired to not do many of the things that we are supposed to do with our money. Yeah. You know, uh, I think there's a new hired wiring that's happened. You know, what are the people say, well, how can you write about personal finance for so long? Well, things are always changing. And the pace of change is increasing to like, to like, uh, it's unprecedented. But one of the changes is in, in terms of your talk about wiring is that we're being wired to spend more than we ever have been. I mean, you talked about the rise of debt. Yes, it's a long-term phenomenon. It was generated in large part by declining interest rates that made mortgages and lines of credit super cheap to carry. So you could enjoy yourself and use your debt to supplement your income. And the burden was, was, I mean, you could carry it. But I think one of the things we're coping with now, and it actually accelerated during the pandemic, is this drive to spend. 
the you know social media and the internet accelerated it. And then we had the pandemic lockdowns, and then we were all freed up, and there was this revenge spending, and now this you know there's splurge culture. I think that that is a an interesting obstacle for people in personal finance, helping people navigate this compulsion, this drive to spend. I think it's getting more and more intense and technology is driving it. You know, social interactions are driving it. And, you know, a recession, if we get one, may help curb that. But that is, I think, as, as we head into it, that's one of the biggest personal finance stories, one of the lesser talked about ones of the past uh, 5, 10, 15 years. Yeah, I mean, we have cues, motivation, like motivating factors coming at us from all angles on spend You should spend here, should spend there. I mean, should is a dangerous word. What have you learned is a way that consumers, I guess I'm going to back up. I can imagine as people are listening, they're like, ooh, that spend word. What should I spend? It it like resonates within them. When you look at this question, how do you think people can start tackling this experience for themselves? How should I spend my money? And I know, again, that should word is dangerous, but in this case, like, how can we approach this? idea of spending our money, what should we spend it on? Well, I think we need to stop telling people save and invest for the future and talk more about why they should do this. What are your goals and how will you get there? And that's not a perfect way to change behavior. But if you tell people, if you really want a house, you've got to save hard for it. And every time you splurge on something or other, you're basically pushing back the time when you could buy a house. And I, I use a house as an example because it is such a, it's such a universal aspiration in Canada to own a house. And market is still extremely expensive uh, on a price perspective and on a borrowing perspective. And so you tell people, save more, invest more, spend less. If you phrase it in, if you want to buy a house, you're going to need to really pound down the savings and curb the spending, that may resonate a little bit more than just sort of a generalized, it's good for you, and that's what all the smartest financial people do. I chuckle a little bit that at the end when you said that's what all the smartest financial people do. I wonder how many of them actually do what they say we should do. You raise an interesting point, but I think that there are a core of people who are doing really smart things. I mean, one of the things I've been exposed to in my time uh, writing about personal finance at the Globe is there's a lot of people doing some really smart thing, things with their money, having a lot of success. They don't necessarily be, need to be super well off, but they're very disciplined. Um, so it is happening. Uh, but one, one thing I want to make clear to people is it's not either or. It's not black or white. There's a long journey between, you know, out of control finances and finances perfectly arranged. And as long as you're on the journey from one to the other, I think you're good. It's when you're sort of in this this stage where you've given up or you feel shamed or you feel like you have no control. How can, like, you know, a job of personal finance writers is how do we get people on the right track to improving? Improving is a very good state. Perfect is unattainable, but improving, that's where we want to, we want to get people. I like the word choice here of improving. I think as we're navigating around this conversation about this message about spending and spending, there's also this earning and earning, and it feeds into this idea of more and more and more. You make such an interesting point here talking about the journey of just improving. I think one of the like socially constructed fallacies that we have is when we have enough or when we get here, everything's going to feel better. But to your point, it's 
it's a journey. And this, I don't think this end or this destination ever arrives. I mean, you've been doing this longer than I've existed. So I'd like to turn it over to you and talk really more about this, this journey. And what have you observed of maybe transitioning or thinking around this golden years of retiring at 65 and going to be happy as opposed to just embracing the journey and focusing on that improving that you talked about? One thing I found in my life is that although even personal finance writers are going to have times when they feel anxiety or they're not doing enough, I can sort of see improvements over the years in net worth, in the value of investments and in reducing debt and you know, in terms of lowering costs. And if I can sort of say that I'm better than I was five years ago or two years ago or whatever, I can think, okay, you know what? That offers assurances. But you know, um, you're talking about like people feeling good about their money. I'm starting to think that we were talking earlier about how people are wired. We're wired to feel bad about money. And I, you know, in, in sort of early in the year before the pandemic was a thing, I wrote a piece about noting that the economy was in pretty good shape by a number of different measures. And yet there were all these polls out showing how, how people were, were worried about money and feeling anxiety about their finances. And I, and I basically interviewed a bunch of people and asked them why that was so. And there was a number of reasons people like felt they weren't saving enough. They weren't, they were spending too much. They, they just seemed to seem to assess what they were doing and find themselves wanting. And then, you know, we had in the past year, we've had inflation soaring and interest rates soaring, and there's much more financial stress in the economy than there was back then. And I'm looking at the, the stress indicators and the polling, and it shows there's more stress, but not a ton more. There was a lot well before things went to hell, and now there's a little more. But I made me think, you know what, we're all always looking at how we're doing financially. We're thinking, ah, it's not good enough. I should be doing more. I would love it if one of the things I could leave behind by the time I'm done is helping people figure out that, yes, I'm improving and that's what's important. It's not like, it's not like I, I shouldn't compare myself to the person who retired at 60 with a $5 million portfolio and that sort of thing. That's great for them. But you, most people don't need that much. And in fact, they may be progressing on their way to, to be just where they need to go. Yeah. The social comparison is really impacting us. And you're, you know, you, you bring up such an interesting point that 2019, we don't have the big pandemic and the economy's doing better, but we're largely still feeling the same. I wonder how much of the pandemic forced people even to examine the relationship with money or how they're currently feeling about money because it, it was up front and center. You had to think about money in a new way. I wonder if that had anything to play with. The pandemic has sort of intensified our interactions with money because you remember every, the people lost jobs early on and the government came up with, with CERB and other programs to support the economy. And then um, people found themselves, a lot of people were stockpiling cash like they'd never seen before because they weren't out spending. And all of a sudden, the savings of the nation just grew tremendously. And a lot of that money is still in savings right now. But then we sort of went into this phase where, wow, we're able to spend again. I'm going to double down and, and buy everything I've wanted and I'm going to travel more. And that's why, you know, you, the airports were crazy. And that's why, um, you know, tickets to concerts became so hard to get. And I think we need to sort of have a cooling off period. <laughs> and, you know, the economy's slowing down and people have really started to rein in their, their spending. And that's great. You know what? I, if you, if you spent a lot, in 2022 and 2023 to enjoy yourself, great. 
Now let's try and rein it in a little bit and, and take stock of where we are and figure what you need to do to take the next step. You know what? The pandemic was like this hothouse of personal finance and everything was just a little bit larger than life. And I think we need a year where we all just recalibrate. And I think 2024 could be that year. I mean, I expect interest rates to come down gradually, slowly, and I expect inflation to taper off. Probably the job market will become a bit tougher. Uh, so there will be challenges. But I think the pressure to spend will ease off. If everybody's, we can officially acknowledge everybody's cutting back, then it becomes socially permissible to say, yeah, I'm cutting back too. And that may help a lot of people sort of solidify their finances after uh, some big ups and downs. You know, looking at these ups and downs, you talk about this idea of improving. How about yourself, Rob, over the pandemic period, how, if anything at all, did your own experience of money or your experience with personal finance change, alter in any form? Of- well, for me personally, I mean, we did, my wife and I did notice that, wow, there's cash just piling up at the end of the week. There's still a lot of money there. <laughs> what is happening? But we quickly uh, found a use for that extra money once the economy opened up. You know, I didn't really personally notice that much change. And I'll tell you why, because I've got my finances automated down to the penny almost. You know, and when I get paid, money goes into multiple different investment and savings accounts, and we just spend whatever's left. And we spend all of it because, or sometimes if there's a little extra, I might throw that into savings as well. But I figure I've got all the savings and all the bills covered, spend the rest. So if there's a little extra as there was during the pandemic, okay, we figure out what to do with that. But for the most part, you know, through thick and thin, as long as my employment income is coming in, everything's automated. It's on autopilot. So there's not really a big difference, you know, between the good times and the bad. I mean, I will check my investments and go, oh, that's pretty ugly. But the money keeps going in every month. And, you know, when the next bull market happens, I'll look and I'll think, wow, things are really accelerated. So, you know, I, I, I have the experience and I'm unique and lucky because I've been doing this for so long that when these things are happening, I kind of know that it's volatility on the high side, the, the exciting side or volatility on the low, the alarming side. But things will always come back to the median level. You know, that's, that's just my perspective. I try to help people understand that. But in the, when things are happening, it's kind of hard to uh, latch onto that. Mm-hmm. This idea of latching onto it, whether it's through your readership, I know you, you have a lot of interaction with your readers, which I really admire. What do you think most people struggle with latching on? Like when those hard times come, when the investment statements aren't looking so pretty and we have this impulse to make changes. I'll use a behavioral economics term, recency bias. You know, it really is so powerful in investing. And I know that people are worried about the stock market because I'll always get an email from a senior who says, I see the stock market's falling and I have to withdraw money from my RIF. And I'm wondering if the government will allow us not to make withdrawals this year or reduce the minimum mandatory withdrawal. And I'll think, oh, people are like, that means... The stock market's fallen enough to start scaring people and they think automatically they think it's ruination for my riff and I don't want to, I don't want to make a withdrawal and what will happen. And bad news at the best of times, think maybe people think it's going to last indefinitely, but there's a lot of, a lot of horrifying things that have happened in the past few years and people are very touchy and I feel for them. I think like, like we've been rattled repeatedly in the past three, four years and. I sympathize with that sort of recency bias, that idea that the the bad thing that's happening now is going to continue and I must make fundamental changes to cope with that. There have been a lot of ups and downs and I think we need a period of normalcy. I'm hoping that will come, but you know, 
the way news on the financial and non-financial side has been flying at us in the past few years, I, I, I don't know, are we in a period of permanent volatility and flux and change? I, I, it's possible. I don't know. It seems to be that way. You know, one event happens and it doesn't seem to give us a break. And you talked earlier about this, the amount of information coming at us. I think the proliferation of social media has really caused us to, I guess, maybe prevent us from really having that low period because you look on social media, there's endless conversations on, you should do this with your money, do this with money, make this much money. That's all playing at these underlying emotions. And unless we remove ourselves from these stimulus, I think it's, I think it's going to be hard to, I think we intentionally need to try to take a break. Yeah, I, I think that the internet and social media have warped society in all kinds of ways. But in the personal finance field, what they've done is they've deluged people with information. And it's not to say that any of the information is good, bad, and different. Some of it, there's, there's all kinds of it out there. But even if you're immersed in only good sources, you're still going to be confused and you're still going to pick out conflicts and you're still going to be thinking, oh, what I heard this and then I heard that. What am I going to do? Maybe the best thing to do is nothing. That is the job of, of someone in my field is to try and be the reliable source. And it's, there's a whole field of people who are doing this now. Great. I say the more the merrier. It's a huge field. There's room for tons of people and tons of voices and all kinds of different takes and nuances. But I think you need to demonstrate your steadiness, your experience, and your judgment. And that's what will sort things out. And hopefully people will gravitate towards you and follow you. And I think there's always a sorting going on. A lot of the bloggers you were talking about have dropped away. Um, a lot of times through lack of interest or they're moving on to other things. I've seen a lot of people come and go in the field. And uh, some people get bored. They want to move on to other things. I totally get that. You know, I, I, I continue with it because I think there's more to say. And there's a, many, many Canadians who are happy you continue in the industry and have so much to say. You know, we, we've been talking about this idea that you know, money kind of is stressful. We're hardwired that way. And like evolutionary speaking, if we saved in our tribal days, that's called hoarding and we might get shunned from the tribe. So this, we have this evolutionary, I guess, predisposition to spend or get rid of. And then you talk about just the level of information that we're having from bloggers, podcasters like me. 20 years ago, we only relied on journalists to bring us this information. And I think we just have so much information coming at us. I appreciate good journalists because they have this, I guess you talk about biases. We need biases to make sense of all this information that we're absorbing. And I looked at people like yourselves as like a trusted source. And now there's this younger generation that I I think is so wonderful that you're looking into them, the Gen Zs, and you have your stress test podcast that focuses on them, where generally speaking, they are set free to the wolves of TikTok and Instagram with all these influencers and, or no, FinTwit, whatever they are, the TikTok yeah. influencers who are really just trying to grasp their attention and maybe speak to why you decided to really speak and try to reach these Gen Z I actually started writing personal finance for millennials because Gen Z was really not a thing. That goes back to about 2008, 2009. My wife and I have two uh, 20-something sons, so that's part of the reason they're millennials. But also, if you remember back, there was some, it was a time when young people were feeling like really left out in the economy. And it was really hard to get first career building jobs. 
and house prices were starting to rise. And a lot of them felt like they weren't really getting a foothold in the economy. So I thought, well, I mean, you've got to, you've got to acknowledge this. You know, we can't all, you know, the boomers and the Gen Xers and the seniors out there can't just sit there like drumming our fingers, waiting for them to catch up and saying, what's taking you so long? So I got interested in that. And then we have uh, Gen Z has emerged with a different take on things than millennials and all the previous generations. And, you know, you have to, you have to refresh your readership and address the young people with that, what, what their concerns are. And um, if you're not doing that, then you're basically saying that I only want to talk to my current customers and I'm not really interested in acquiring any new ones. And I'm always, I'm always interested in what, uh, what young people are doing and saying what's money doing and, I'm always interested in what young people are saying about money and what they're doing with it uh, because it's fresh and different and it's the next generation. They're not all going to suddenly merge into the same lane as boomers have been in. You know, earlier I said your experience is wisdom. I feel like that statement right there is a lot of wisdom in there. So what what are they saying and feeling right now? The the younger millennials to Gen Zs? I think they're an extremely money savvy group. They understand the need to take control of your finances. They understand the idea of saving for retirement. They're pessimistic about home ownership, uh, which is justifiable, um, but I think maybe a bit premature because when a 25-year-old says, I'll never own a house, I say, well, what about the next 15 years? You might buy a house in that time. And in fact, I think it's pretty likely you will. They've got two tracks. One, a little bit of pessimism about things, but on the other hand, a keener understanding of money and finance and the demands that they're going to have to meet than perhaps some previous generations. I just think a lot of information has seeped down. Um, their parents have become more engaged with money and they've probably taken more steps to teach them and their uh, schools are teaching more about money. So I think they've absorbed a lot more than people, previous generations at that same age. You know, it's so interesting. Would you have ever thought 30 some years after you started, you would be doing a podcast, writing, towards your children's demographic, messaging towards basically your children and their peers. And how is it writing towards, like, do you think about your kids when you're writing these posts or doing the podcast? I do to some extent. Yeah, uh, for sure I do. I think about my my own kids. I think about my nieces and nephews. I think about the kids of friends and what's their experience and what are they up against? What do they think? You know, it's like you cannot be a boomer assessing everything from the point of view of comparing it to yourself and thinking, why are they different? And, and equating that difference with some kind of deficiency. It's a whole different world out there. And you have to understand it. These are tomorrow's home buyers, tomorrow's mm -hmm. consumers, tomorrow's taxpayers. We need them to prosper and uh, we need to understand how they're progressing. Yeah. There, there's a lot of commentary around just how, from this generation, how expensive things are, how unaffordable things are. You have an article on the Globe and Mail called Gen Z's Think You Need to Make $100,000 to Live Comfortably. As I was looking at that, my thinking went around the research around the intersection of money and happiness, where the research really shows us that money, it does ease life, it reduces stress, and it alleviates unhappiness up to a certain income threshold. After this income threshold, which varies based on your needs and your needs for shelter, food, securities, things like that. It doesn't necessarily create happiness. But I want to think about this, this threshold level. I'm hearing that people, I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, that people moving from Toronto, Ontario, um, Vancouver are saying it just isn't affordable in some of the cities in Canada. When you talk and engage with these Gen Zs, millennials, what do you think 
is a rough, or do you think it's affordable for us to meet those basic needs in these large cities in Canada? When I know that comparative to many other large cities, we're not quite there, but we're getting closer and closer. So I guess this question is, is for Canadians, are we able to meet not minimum wage, but this life satisfaction wage enough money to sustain our needs? It's a real challenge in uh, Toronto and Vancouver and all the little cities and towns that are uh, around those those urban centers. It is. Uh, I I think a lot of people are living, younger people particularly, are living in some sort of financial survival mode. They're paying their mortgage or their rent, and there's not a heck of a lot left over. And they're using debt to supplement their spending, or their you know for for discretionary and non-discretionary spending. And it's a problem. I mean, I think the biggest puzzle for me in personal finance today is high rents. Like people go on about high expensive houses, and I. And I can see that's a big problem. But if you can't afford your rent, how do you ever save enough to buy a house? And yet rents have been going up uh, by, you know, double digit amounts for quite a while now. And in many, many cities, not big and small, our rents are taking up, you know, 30, 40, 50% of, of income. And there's not a lot left over there for Never mind a hold-out payment, but just having a little emergency fund and having a trip fund and all that stuff. So I, I think that uh, I really question how younger people in some of the bigger, more expensive cities, how they're going to navigate things and where, where we go from here. You know, if we, if we put a permanent floor under rents where they are today, and maybe even if things slow down, we get smaller rent increases, it's going to take a long time until salaries increase to make these to make these manageable. So, what is what happens? Do we have a we have like an underclass of young people in big cities? Will a lot of them migrate out? Which is very bad news for these cities because you need young people to refresh the economy. I think we're going to have to come to grips with this. There's this idea that if we could just wave a magic wand to build all these thousands of houses, that everything would settle out because houses would become affordable. I think that sounds really overly simplistic. I I think it's a lot more complex than that. You're certainly right. Do you get a sense that you mentioned Gen Z and the younger millennials are savvy? I sometimes have conversations. I do a lot of speaking at the universities here in Edmonton that it's almost like not giving up hope, just not dramatically thinking different around this idea of saving for retirement. And I guess giving up hope that this like, socially constructed perfect life for you retired 65 isn't attainable. And it, it, it almost feels like a hopelessness in the conversations. And I yeah. don't know if that's being like curious to think about things differently or it's bad. I have noticed the same thing. And the, the risk is that you disengage to the point where you think, well, I'm never going to retire, so why would I bother saving for retirement? So I'm just going to like go on another trip this year or uh, buy some more Taylor Swift tickets or something. <laughs> that is a real risk. I'm not convinced it's happening in a big way. And I think sometimes people, when they say things like that, they're talking it out and, and they're, it's like they're thinking out loud. And it's not necessarily what they're doing. It's not necessarily what they truly believe, but they're, they're, they're floating it out there as an idea. Also, we have to, you know, what we forget, and young people tend to really forget this, is your life evolves and usually it improves. You you advance your career, you have more earnings, you meet someone, you, you so you have like two incomes, that sort of thing. And what seems impossible today might be possible in five years, quite possible. So I think I think what we hear 
in those comments is people working through the challenges, feeling a bit pessimistic, justifiably, but I don't think they've given up. I just think they're feeling, uh, they're not feeling it right now, but I would like to check back with these people five years later and see, did things get better for you? I think a lot of people, they will, if they will say, yes, I got a promotion, I got a great job, it's made a big difference, and now I'm saving more and I can see myself on the path to where I need to go. Mm-hmm. I hope and I feel that there's this idea of, like I said earlier, this curiosity to just do things differently, which I think is progress and is great. It's like this idea that you're saying we're improving is maybe some generations took it too seriously to like focus just on the money as opposed to taking those trips or recognizing that, hey, I might work until I'm beyond 55. This freedom 55 isn't what I want. So I hope it's a, you know, like you said, it's not one or the other, I think, but I really hope there's this curiosity to just think and do things differently because, you know, we look at FP Canada and they come out every year saying money's the top stressor in our lives. So, yeah, that's going to, money's going to be the top stressor in people's lives from now until forever. And I'm kind of bored with that headline. Like there's a lot of financial companies out there that try to entice the media into writing things about how people are stressed about money. It's the number one stress, even ahead of health. Yeah, it was even, it was in 2019 before the pandemic. It was exactly the same. There's nothing new there. What else you got? I go, what else are you going to tell me about, about how people are feeling? Um, as for young people trying something different, I, I think they are, but you know, they have to feel their way along. And I think when you get into the career path and you have kids, it kind of puts you on a certain track. And I think, you know, there's going to be more people not having kids. That's an economic reality as much as anything. And I think there's going to be people who are retiring later. And there was, so there will be trying different things, but eventually, you know what, you have to figure out, I need, I'm going to retire. I can't work till I drop. I don't want to. I'm going to need to save some money. I really do want to own a house. I'm going to have to make a priority of that. And I think you will start to see these people who we feel now are kind of not fitting in. They'll fit in. They'll they'll find mm-hmm. their way into the mainstream, and, and you know they may uh, they may they may just take a slightly different track. They may take a year or two out of the workforce. I, I mean, I think sabbaticals are going to be a bigger thing. Up, going taking time out to travel or to upgrade credentials or to have different experiences. Young people are a lot more um, a lot more comfortable with with changing jobs quickly. Like the boomer thing was to lock into your employer in that pension plan and hang on for dear life. I think young people don't feel anywhere near as tied to their jobs. So that, that will be an aspect of things. I'm really interested to see how, what the reality is for young people versus all these things we think they're going to do based on what they say when they're 22 years old and haven't really done much in the world. That's definitely true. Speaking about doing things differently, I've seen on Twitter or, or X and some of your Globe articles You've been talking more about adult children, so not 25-year-olds, but adult children living with their parents as they age. And specifically, like I, I read one where they're purchasing a part of the, the home to, to, to live together. I'd like to get your thinking around this. Multi-generational housing, and it could be all kinds of different ranges. It could be young adults moving back home with their parents to because they can't afford rent or they want to build up a home down payment. It could be parents living with their adult kids and their grandkids. So you've got three generations. It makes a heck of a lot of sense. It's common in in many cultures around the world for families to live together. It's really a North American thing where we all have our own giant house and we all have more bedrooms than we need and more square footage than we need. And the builders keep building bigger and bigger houses. But we did it, Rob. We bought that first house. We did (laughs) celebrate it. Just don't look at the payments. 
Yeah, too true. But I, I mean, with the with the multi generational housing, it solves affordability and it solves a lot of social challenges too, like like aging parents who need help, parents with young kids who need daycare. I think you know what I'll know it's a trend when I start to see builders building homes, and they're going to call them multi generational homes with with in law suites built in. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to do the reno. It's got like the separate entrance and one bedroom apartment on the bottom and the two bedroom apartment on the top. And when we're, anyway, I, I think, although it's taking off then, but I think by sheer practicality and necessity, it's already starting to happen. And it, it seems to me to be one of the most practical things you could do if housing is flat out, not affordable. Yeah. You know, my parents actually moved in a block away from me and I have two young kids. They're four and seven. And we don't share a house, but the part that I think is, also fascinating is I spend quite a bit of time looking at well-being and relation to money. And the number one indicator to like a good life is social relationships, strong social relationships and family. So not only in these contexts are you reducing your costs, but you're, you're, you're continuing these bonds and hopefully we get along with our families to enjoy those bonds. But to your social aspect of this is I think it also just it helps prevent some loneliness and so many other benefits as well. I think you're right on the money there, so to speak. It is a big time problem solver uh, in the social and the financial side. And I think that we have this privacy, my own space culture, and that will continue to be the preference for most people. But I I do wonder if a lot of people by necessity are going to find their way into doing this sort of thing and think, wow, that really worked out well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. You know, you've written a few books and I mean, you spent a lifetime writing and look forward to the years to come with writing. One of the books that you wrote, Rob Carrick's Guide to What's Good, Bad and Downright Ugly is a fantastic title and also a great content in there. My first question on this is, what was it like coming up with that title? I've never written a book, but I can imagine you have all these ideas and words coming up with a title. could be challenging. So that's my first one. And as 2023 comes to a close, if you had to do a revised version of this to document what the good, bad, and downright ugly are in personal finance for 2023, what would they be? Well, first off, it was the editor of the book that came up with the title. In fact, the editor usually comes up with the title. I don't think I've ever titled one of my, oh, okay. one of my own books. What's that like? Just like, giving up all control. Just here you go. It's fine. You know, it's fine. I mean, they don't just say that's what it is. Yeah suck it up. They, um, they say, well, this is what we've come up with. And basically we're challenging you to do better. And I, I, I thought I'm going to defer to their judgment. I mean, they know what, what, how to title a book to have it sell. I know how to t- I put a headline on a personal finance story going online. Mm-hmm. They know how to, that's my expertise. Their expertise is titling books. So I leave it to them. It's a whole different world. I wrote that book many years ago and the world has completely changed. There's so, you know, investing industry has improved a lot since then. Every aspect of it is better. The range of products is better. The pricing is vastly better. The advice industry is a lot better, a lot more conscientious, a lot more savvy, a lot more client-focused. That doesn't mean there's still not lots of improvement needed, but I, I think it's improved. And I think a lot of the things that I thought were good, I probably think today were less good. And I would, I would, and the things were bad, I think a lot of them would probably have fallen by the wayside. Okay. I think an important thing to talk about is advice is better. That's good. You talked about improvement. And I'm glad to see that you feel the advice market or the advice industry is getting better. For people listening, whether we're Gen Z, millennials, or boomers, what 
do you feel is important when they look for a channel of, of advice? You have to find someone who is going to give you what you want, not what they choose to give. And that's where the best relationships happen. So if you want financial planning, you either find a financial planner or an investment advisor who does planning. There's so many mis misalignments out there of people who want someone to help guide their overall finances. And they basically have a person who just sells and manages investments. And that is where a lot of dissatisfaction comes because it's hard to continually demonstrate your value when all you're doing is buying and selling investments because sometimes your clients are going to love you and sometimes they're going to hate you. Uh, whereas the planning relationship is based on continual coaching and interaction and moving towards goals and handling uh, curves and that sort of thing. And I think there's a lot more, uh, a lot more value in that. And that has become more of a theme in the advisory uh, sector. And I think it's all to the good. I think the big problem with advice right now, and it's a problem that no one in the industry seems to have any idea about how to solve, is there's a lot of people out there who want and need advice, and they cannot be connected with planners and advisors because the planners and advisors have, they're too busy, they have too high a minimum, they have too many clients, and there's just not a fit. So, you know, all this talk about what's AI going to do, I'm waiting for AI to solve the problem of connecting mid-market people with planning and advice. They're not getting it right now. They want it. You should see the questions I'm getting in my email in-basket, just like dozens a week, ground-level stuff. And I was thinking, if you had a planner or an advisor, they probably would have answered this for you. And if, and if they hadn't already... You could ask this at your next meeting or send them an email and probably get a quick prompt answer, but instead they come to me and I'm thinking this is an advisorless person. They probably could use one. Mm -hmm. But you make such a good point is there's these barriers for the advisors, whether it's a certain amount of assets or fees that the mass market might not be able to obtain. So I share your optimism with AI and hopefully it can help a large portion of Canadians and Americans and whomever is listening. When you look towards 2024, what excites you? What realm of personal finance is, are you thinking like, okay, this is exciting. I really want to dig more into this and write about it. I think the housing market is hugely important to, to globe readers. So I'm really curious to see what happens in the housing. It's like, it's like a thriller. Like you just saw it hit the peaks. It's retreating now. Does it pick itself up again and start Sorry again next year when interest rates come down, do we finally get a meaningful pullback in prices? It opens up an entry point for young people and takes away some of the equity of boomers. It rattles them because they thought their financial plan was their house. I mean, there are going to be huge shockwaves if housing falls. And I'm really excited to see how that turns out. Uh, I'm also curious about the broader economy. I've covered a few recessions and they are not fun. There's a lot of human suffering and the people losing jobs and incomes and, and mortgage defaults and all that kind of thing. And I hope I don't see that. I would like to not cover that, but I am curious to see whether it comes to that next year. You know, you, you got me thinking, let's imagine you go way back to the 90s when you're covering, I forget what department you are in Ottawa, but let, let's say you're in the government, you're the head of personal finance in Canada, even though that's not an area. We're looking at systems issues now. So a lot of your content is personal finances. We're, we're looking at what me and you can do to help improve our situation. What do you think from a systems level? If you're the head of financial planning in Canada or for head of personal finances, what, what is a system fix or system change that could help us improve collectively as a society? I think the biggest thing we could do 
would be to encourage automatic savings. This will all date myself, and a lot of your listeners probably won't know what the heck I'm talking about, but Canada Savings Bonds were a model automatic savings plan. Canada Savings Bonds were like government bonds that were issued to individuals. You could buy them like for $100. And most people bought them through payroll deduction at work. You'd have a little bit of money taken off your check. And at the end of the year, HR would call you and say, come pick up your bond. It would be $1,000, $500, $2,000. And you'd have this bond in your hands. And you could take it to the bank to sell it, or you could keep it, and it would just keep earning interest. And they were popular back when interest rates were high like in the range of where they are now. Um, but this idea of everybody participating in something where they were building wealth without feeling it and they were happy mm. to do it. Um, it was just, to me, it was just an outstanding success. And we haven't really replaced the Canada Savings Bond in, in, the, um, in the workplace. We've got, you know, we've got a certain number of companies with pensions and retirement savings programs, but a lot of them are optional and people are not mm. opting in. And I think anything we could do to get people automatically enrolled in the pension, and if you want to get out, you just sign this form and triplicate and hand, send these papers to all these different places and you can get out, but it's not going to be easy. I think automating this sort of thing really works. If you're, I mean, if we're going to rely on people to make the cho- right choices, lots will, but many won't. And we, they, they'll never be brought into the system without this automatic thing. So it's all opt-in or maybe a negative option where you're automatically enrolled, but you can get out if you say you want to. But I think I think those work really well. You know, the Canada Pension Plan is a great example. You know what? It's it's not your whole retirement, but it is a small, significant piece. And everybody has it because everybody was required to 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 contribute to it. And at the end, you you just basically say, I'm retired, I'd like to collect it now, and the checks start and they last as long as you live. Uh, we need. I, I'd like to see more along those lines. Somehow, can we build up sort of a parallel savings program? Maybe the, the Canada TFSA plan, where we put money in a T, TFSAs, and then we can pull it out if we need to fairly easily, but automatically it's going in there all the time, and it would be in addition to our retirement savings. I, I really think something like that would be incredibly beneficial. You, you know, when you're talking about the opt-out triple signature, I feel like you could only opt out we're talking in Canada here, so it's cold in the winter. You can only opt out in February and you have to ride your bike across town to do it as well. You know, all those obstacles are great. As long as they are theoretically doable, yeah. I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, I think people, it's much easier to just live live with it than to go through those loops. And I think the outcome is very positive in those cases because wealth is being built. My parents and I were having a conversation actually specifically with my mom and they were both teachers. And early from uh, graduating, they had kids and they started teaching in their early 20s and they're retired now. And my mom read an article just about how difficult it is to save now, especially in your child rearing years when you don't have these defined benefit pensions. It kind of touches on the point where when they had three kids and it was challenging, like my mom was saying, I even felt like I wasn't saving at that time, but this pension was just building up. So this automatic enrollment idea really, really does work. It works fabulously. Uh, although here's an example of how personal finance is always evolving and interesting things are happening all the time in today's complex world. I'm hearing stories now about young people who are automatically enrolled in pensions uh, at companies where this happens and they want out. They're thinking, I don't want to do this. I would rather direct my money to buying a house. want to de-emphasize retirement. I don't think it's a movement. I don't think it's happening all over the place, but uh, I actually want to call about this sort of contrasting this attitude towards the boomer attitude that, you know, a pension was 
you know, the most desirable aspect of a job. In fact, you'd stay in a job you didn't really like that much for decades just to have this pension. Mm -hmm. Young people think, okay, I'm getting a pension, but I'd rather have a house. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's going to be um, a challenge for employers offering pensions to balance what they offer their employees. I mean, I think there should always be a pension, uh, but there maybe there should be an additional savings program and maybe you could toggle between the two of them mm -hmm. um, on an as needed basis. Uh, you know, we, we can accommodate the need to save for retirement and also the need to save for other things if we're, if we're nimble about it. And uh, I wouldn't want to see some sort of anti-pension movement develop. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to happen, but if uh, we have uh, like a lean year or two ahead, people might think, yeah, I, I don't need to save for retirement. I need all, I need all the bucks right now for, for today's world. Yeah. And I like this idea of not tying to the employer. If it's this TF automatic TFSA or some sort of saving yeah. vehicle that's not employer specific. So I see the time here. I wanted to ask you a question. I've been doing that for the last hour, but this one's about Rob. In your bio, as I was reading it, you mentioned that you were married and you talked that you have kids as well. And in that bio, though, you talk about you've been consistently seeking intelligent ways to spend and invest your money. That's through your articles. You emphasize today, as we're talking, the importance of improving and simplicity. As you look back on your journey through this personal finance space, what shifts are improvements on how you actually spend your money? And I don't need to know the things, just more or less, I guess, the value of things have really added to you being able to say, hey, that was good. I've, I've spent my money on some good things. I've focused my time on some good things. What has really mattered over the last 37 years? I lean towards saving and my wife leans towards strategically enjoying money more than I do. And that was a uh, really her, kind way of saying spending. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we're very complimentary. And I think when we have dug into our savings to enjoy something, particularly for travel, it's been super rewarding. And, you know, like I've heard travel is, you know, gives you three benefits, the anticipation, the enjoyment of the actual trip, and then the recollection about it afterwards. And that is so, so true. And I would say that we've got fabulous value of money we spent traveling, much more so than probably most of the possessions, not all, but most of the possessions we've bought. But, you know, in terms of my personal, personal finance journey, uh, one of the biggest shifts was when we got our mortgage paid off and I was able to sort of reroute all that money into retirement saving. And up to that point, we had kids and, you know, uh, post-secondary educational costs and everything else. And so, you know, we were saving for retirement, but I was thinking, are we saving enough? We could be doing more. But getting into that phase of getting the mortgage paid off and then routing that into retirement, that was sort of a, took the pressure off because then all of a sudden a lot of money was going into retirement saving. And I thought that really I could I could dial down my level of concern because because we had taken that big step and so I encourage people in today's world it's tougher than it ever was because the bulk of our mortgage experience was in the low rate world where every time you renewed your mortgage it was at a lower rate I would encourage people to think that don't buy so much house that you can't have it paid off five, seven, 10 years ahead of retirement so that you can take your mortgage money and put it into retirement. That will really make you feel better about how you're doing. Thank you for that. My final question I've asked everyone, and there might be some overlap, but let's imagine you're at end of life, however old that is, it is, and you decide to write the last article for the Globe and Mail. And you make it a letter to your children's children about what you learned 
on having a happy and healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? The theme is so simple and so cliched, but so important. And that is you have to be able to live on less money than you make so that you are able to save and minimize, manage your debt. That's going to be a permanent feature in most people's lives, but it has to be managed. Living slightly below your means means you have a surplus and that surplus will pay for everything good in life that you want. It'll pay for the fun things you want to do. It'll pay for your family to do fun things and it'll pay for a comfortable retirement. You have to be able to manage that gap between what you make and what you spend. So true. Rob, it's been an absolute delight to be able to have this conversation with you. As I said at the top, you have been a consistent, I was going to say voice, but consistent letters on my screen for my career in the finance world. So thank you for all you're doing. For listeners who want to find out more about your podcast, Stress Test, your work with the Globe and Mail, where would you tell listeners to find you online? I would just say Google my name and it will all flow out there. I have polluted a lot of Google with my, with my writings over the past decades. I do the Stress Test Personal Finance Podcast for Gen Z and Millennials. I have Carrick on Money. It's an email newsletter you can subscribe to. It comes twice a week. I do columns on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Global Mail and on Saturday as well. I do investing blog posts um, a couple times a week. I am productive and there's lots out there for everybody. As you were saying all that, I'm like, wow, you you got a lot of stuff. Then you just said, I'm productive. (laughs) And you must just enjoy it still. Like, it's remarkable. You You know what? Each each column is a story I'm telling about something. And I'm I'm interested enough in it to have decided to write about it. That's great. Do you you take avatars or like someone you're writing to? We kind of talked about your kids, but each person. Not really. I sometimes do, but mostly I'm just trying to, mostly I'm in explanation mode. Here's what I see, and let me try to explain to you in a way that you're going to completely grasp it and be able to use it in your own life. Well, thanks again. And I mean, your impact on the personal finance space in Canada has been remarkable. So thanks for joining me and thanks for all the great work you're doing. Thank you for tuning in to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. If you're still listening, perhaps that means you enjoyed the show. If so, you can support the show in one of two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, or share this episode with a friend. If you found this episode beneficial, I suggest you check out episode number 72 with Dan Bordelotti. The episode is called Evolve Your Money Mindset with a Canadian Couch Potato. Dan and Rob have shared many articles together in the past, and I am confident you'll enjoy episode number 72 with Dan. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. Now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea